HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Culture City, a for-purpose organization that provides a place of acceptance and support for all autism families. For more information, visit culturecity.org. This is Mitchell Davis, host of Taste Matters. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway, and it's a kind of chilly fall Sunday here in Brooklyn, but uh, I'm uh, I'm actually simmering some uh, soup on my stove right now with um, some vegetables, and I can't wait to try out many more uh, recipes with all these great vegetables we're now in season this fall, um, thanks to the book I'm holding right now. It's uh, the latest and greatest cookbook from Chef Mike Anthony. It's called V is for Vegetables, and Chef Mike Anthony is on the line right now. How are you? Hi, good. How's it going, Kathy? It's good. It's good. So uh, just a little background. Chef Mike is, I guess, one of New York City's favorite chefs, and he's also the winner of the Outstanding Chef in the United States Award um, by the James Beard Award Foundation um, in 2005. And you're also the chef at Gramercy Tavern, uh, untitled at the Whitney. 2015, it was just this year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's um, that means you're everyone's favorite chef, basically. <laughs> so I congratulations. I was excited to be a part of the, the whole thing. It was, we had a lot of fun in Chicago. Amazing, they actually... Uh, held the award ceremony in Chicago for the first time ever, which was pretty cool. Right, right. It was kind of cold, right, up there? Uh, no, it was good. We were. In, it's in the spring, and Chicago is an inviting town. Everybody uh, in the city was really pumped that the award ceremony was there. So you know, they made uh, everyone traveling feel welcome, and mm. they had the mayor and the governor come out. It was a. Uh, it was a big deal. Wow, cool. So I know that this book just came out like this week. Or last week, and um, did you have to like stop the press to get that 2015, um, you know, award on your bio here? Because it just, um, I know, cookbooks take was, a long time. It to print. was pretty crazy. It was like we had just opened um, Untitled, mm-hmm. our new restaurant at the Whitney Museum, uh, literally that weekend, and uh, so we were all kind of crazy mm-hmm. with all the you know details and last-second um, planning and getting um, not just uh, Untitled Restaurant open, but we also operate 
a cafe called Studio Cafe on the eighth floor of the museum. So it was pretty intense. We were definitely uh, deprived of sleep, but mm-hmm. you know um, we were committed to traveling to Chicago. It, it happened. It was just fun being part of the party, and you never really know how it's gonna end up. Um, mm-hmm. And in all of the race to get both of those restaurants open, uh, Dorothy Kalins and I somehow were able to accomplish this um, this book, and we. Um, you know, we had a, a unique way of working. Mm-hmm. Um, we we collected the same team of folks, the all-star cast of people who worked on the Gramercy Tavern cookbook. Right. And uh, we transformed Dorothy's uh, apartment into our photo studio. She has a nice kitchen, so we would get together um, and that's and Dorothy shoot. Kalins, by the way, uh, the producer. Dorothy Kalins. Who oh, Dorothy Kalins, yeah. Yep, awesome. Co-author of the book, mm-hmm. um, one of the greatest storytellers, masterful at um, you know putting together uh, photographs, texts, and recipes in a way that makes people really feel like they're connected to the recipe. She she is everyone's uh, fairy godmother mm-hmm. and has become a real mentor uh, and a friend. So, amazingly, she dedicated her apartment to the task of doing this book. And I don't think this is a very common way of, of handling cookbooks, but I, I would get together and um, with our team, all present in the kitchen, we would aim to shoot six, seven, eight dishes uh, a day. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty grueling at times, but also a lot of fun. Um, Maura McAvoy um, is the photographer and she uh, is such a she has such a great eye. She uses natural light to shoot most of the book, and she's really diligent, like just really relentless about kind of getting in the kitchen, kind of having that camera right over mm-hmm. my shoulder or in my face or in the in the casserole while things are cooking. <laughs> and she, you know, she was really driven by both you know telling the story of each of the dishes. Um, really capturing a lot of process shots so yeah. people don't have to wonder, like, hey, am I doing this right? And it's it's really cool to see, like, each recipe has a few process shots um, interspersed. Yep. So and I'm really glad you mentioned that you shot it in a home because it, it really has that unpretentious, like, less, um, I mean, they look beautiful, but it doesn't look overly produced, you know, the photography. It looks very homey and approachable. Um, yeah, that was the aim of the book, is to make um, real dishes that could get people excited about being in their own kitchens, using, you know, vegetables as the theme to get fired up about seasonal foods and thinking mm-hmm. about, you know, what's distinctively delicious from, you know, from uh, from a home cook's perspective. Um, there was a little it pressure is. in each one of these shoots to make the food delicious because we literally sat down and ate each of these mm-hmm. dishes after they were produced. And if we didn't love them, they didn't make the cut. Wow. <laughs> um, and there were a lot of cooks' hands, uh, so to speak, in the pot. Uh-huh. Um, you know, our uh, recipe tester, Kathy Brennan, who's a good friend, um, Dorothy, of course, Don Morris, the uh, you know, graphics uh, designer, was even part of the process of saying, hey, I think that that looks a little complicated, Mike. Like, why are you doing it like that? <laughs> Some days I would say, because that's what makes it taste good. <laughs> and other days, you know, I had to be really, um, you know, very flexible and say, okay, I realize that, you know, most home cooks are probably not going to approach it 
this way. And as a, you know, from an experienced mm-hmm. cook's perspective, um, I really had to be flexible and say, all right, like I might have added a few more ingredients to this, yeah. um, but not many people will. So let's tone this down. That's cool. And this is quite a departure from your first book, The Gramercy Tavern Cookbook, which um, I-, I guess this feels like less like a chef cookbook. Um, as you were saying, it's 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 very approachable and, and toned down and it's it makes sense for the everyday um you know, home cook, but also the focus on is on vegetables this time. And I'm curious as to why um, that took precedence um, for this tome. Um, I, I feel like we're in a time right now where vegetables, like we're having a major vegetable fetish, like <laughs> from the best chefs around. And I mean, it's funny to say that, like, this is the moment for vegetables since it's like most of what we eat. But, um, you know, I've seen a couple chef cookbooks come out with, like, vegetable-forward cookbooks. Um, so I'm just curious why you think that might be happening, or yeah, if you agree. Yeah, I think it's a, kind of a normal phenomenon in the way um, especially American cooks are cooking, because it's starting to define what a contemporary American uh, approach to cooking is all about. We're searching high and low to cook things that are distinctive uh, to our regions. Mm-hmm. Um, we're looking for ways in which we can, you know, tell a story that's not just emulating uh, Europe or Asia, but we're really trying to come up with these homegrown stories. Um, and now more than ever, people see that American food is about um, eating vibrant, healthy ingredients. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're not really, uh, for the most part, looking to um, give up any pleasure either. I mean, the the idea that this is a really hedonistic style of eating um, that just happens mm-hmm. to lean on, um, in, you know, materials, ingredients that are uh, colorful and come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Um, we're we're building off of the strengths that we've seen in the last ten years of farmers markets increasing all across the country. Um, more people are interested in, you know, hearing about the backstory of where their food comes from and who grows it. CSAs are exploding, so people are able to show their um, commitment um, and interest in supporting farms. So it's it's the story of, like, really exploring who we are. Mm-hmm. It just happens to be, I think, one of the easiest ways to, to tell that story. Right. We are definitely interested in eating you know, fish and meat and, and haven't excluded that from from this book because that's the way I eat. This book is not about um, Strictly exploring vegetarian, yeah. vegetarianism or veganism and it is definitely not about uh, preaching to people how they should eat. It mm-hmm. just is an exciting way to um, <clears throat> to reassure them that they can do it. I mean, all through the book, I tried to take the kind of helpful voice of saying, look, you can't mess this up. Read the book. Um, get excited about some of these ideas. Go out and ask some questions. And then close the book and make the dishes with a little bit of your intuition because, you know, you, you'll you make the recipes your own. They're already very simple to begin with. Um, they, I think it's about the, the idea of encouraging people to say, if you take a little bit of time to go out and, and get some ingredients that are readily available to most everyone, um, that it's worth it, you know, like here's the way I set my kitchen up. Here's the way I set literally my cutting board up. So as um, that, you know, vegetables sometimes seem daunting to people. You, you know, you hold up a big globe of artichoke and you're like, wow, there are, you know, Spiky this seems things. impenetrable. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, people look at kohlrabi like, what is this weird thing? And I, I wanted to shift our attention from kind of looking at these things as foreign objects to really cool objects and kind of being enamored with how, you know, how oddly shaped they are. But the reality of it is, is that trimming them and getting them ready to become a delicious meal isn't really that hard. Mm-hmm. Well, and I know that we're not preaching in this book, but um, I mean, there's so many studies that tell us that, you know, if we just ate a little bit more vegetables each day, you know, you could water, I don't know, five million golf courses or something. <laughs> you know, the, it, it's really astounding, like how much of a difference it does make, um, not just to your personal health, but to the planet. Um, is that any part of your, uh, I don't know, interest in exploring vegetables and sharing um, how how easy and delightful they can be to cook? Yeah, completely. I mean, I'm a father. I have three daughters, so I'm really always thinking about how, as a parent, am I introducing, you know, foods to, to my kids that are, are healthy and nutritious. I think as a, an enthusiastic eater, you know, I've wanted to explore themes that help us to kind of either gain access to healthy, nutritious, delicious ingredients or just, you know, maintain access. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, for all of the enthusiasm that's out there in our country today, uh, and it's, you know, it's really interesting to see the positive developments. Um, now more than ever, we really have to kind of stand up and um, insist on um, our right to access to these things because industry, if industry would have its way, um, the momentum of um, homogenization of our taste uh, of monocultures across the country, um, these things were at risk of not mm-hmm. really having them around for our kids when they grow up. So now's the time, you know, for people who are interested in, in eating um, interesting foods that are healthy, vibrant, yeah. delicious, interesting um, in the sense of their history, um, interesting for the flavor components, like. Food should be a positive and pleasurable part of our lives. That's the emphatic statement behind this book, rather yeah. than suggesting, you know, the negative impacts of of what um, you know could happen. I I think yeah. the um, the real argument is not so much about um, what Americans are eating and and how it might be a detriment to their health. The real argument is what we're not eating enough of. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we look around all the fun places that I've had a chance to travel, Korea, Japan, France, these, these places, um, you know, if you look at what hit, actually hits the table, is a wide variety of interesting plants. And then, you know, enthusiastic eaters in those places can eat anything they want because their meals are, are balanced and, you know, full of variety. And I just, I'd love for us to be able to kind of proudly, when we talk about what uh, contemporary American food is, Mm -hmm. to be able to, you know, kind of boast of the same things, that we share all of these cool stories that are popping up all around our country, and that, you know, our culture is marked by variety and diversity. Yes, we have that variety. Let's just take advantage of it more. And, And I love how this book really covers, I mean, it's in alphabetical order by vegetable, but there's so many types of vegetables, and there's the tops, there's the roots, there's the greens, and there's all. I mean, it, it really does look vast. It looks like it's pretty crazy. We yeah. wanted to show in photographs those plants 
in you know when they're still connected so Mm -hmm. root stems leaves attached and through our you know friends that grow these things we were able to you know to get these whole plants to show off um we were able to kind of show these beautiful uh, 19th century botanical prints Mm -hmm. from france that are just like we see them on seed catalogs and just like kind of gush over how beautiful they are and then i even talked my wife into um sharing about 70 drawings of plants that you can find on the um, oh, throughout so the book, cool. and especially on the end pages. Those are all hand-drawn oh, pictures awesome. that she did. Um, the book is organized so that <clears throat> we share um, interesting stories and anecdotes and um, you know helpful tips rather than um, focusing on botanical information yeah. that you know might show up in a in an encyclopedia. <laughs> And nowhere do I talk about, you know, the origin of these vegetables, you know, in the Ming Dynasty, which, you know, is interesting for some. And I, you know, I find that uh, that information pretty cool. But I really wanted to share information about cooking vegetables and how Mm -hmm. it, you know, pertains to our everyday lives. This book is really for home cooks. Yeah, and on that note, I love how you mentioned that you didn't understand leeks for a long time until you... (laughs) I mean, it's (laughs) kind of funny, like, I'll I'll throw these statements out there, like, you know... What is is a leek? I don't really understand leeks, and my wife looks at me me like, seriously? (laughs) And, um, but the reality of it is, it's like, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, and Mm -hmm. um, I didn't eat a lot of these things growing up. I, we don't really look, we can't really look back to a strong culture where these were you know, looked at as comfort foods or the base of our of our current um, cooking culture. So the the stories of running into these vegetables came from basically when I started traveling mm-hmm. and started you know feeling a real thirst and interest and in, mm-hmm. in exploring things that weren't familiar to me. But the more I travel, the more I realize that you know we actually do grow these these mm-hmm. plants and they make up the backbone of our, you know, local cultures. And they are interesting because they're available not just for two weeks out of the year. They're they're actually, um, in most parts of the country, they're available for, you know, three quarters of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and they make, they're delicious and easy. You know, we talked about this notion of unzipping vegetables. That was kind of our, our way of describing the fact that it may look a little daunting from the outside, but with a quick chop and a little, you know, peel, these things are kind of ready um, to to be turned into a meal, like, much quicker than I think people realize. They don't um, require, you know, some sort of culinary degree to figure out how to chop them. And they don't necessarily take, in most cases, you know, hours and hours of simmering to to actually turn them into something delicious. And you definitely demonstrate that with the kohlrabi. I'm going to show this to anyone who asks me about kohlrabi again. <laughs> oh, right on, those, yeah. Isn't yeah. that funny? I mean, the vegetable it's, is such an oddity to most of us. Yeah. But um, just a, a really quick trim with a peeler or a paring knife, and you can eat those things raw, um, and they're, you know, it's kind of sweet and juicy yeah. and turn into, like, the greatest uh salad or kind of addition to a salad. Yeah. Uh, I've always been amazed at how, how fast and easy it is to use them. Well, um, I can't wait to talk a little bit uh, more about these recipes and your whole philosophy, but we're going to cut to a quick little commercial interlude and be right back. Sounds good.
Hi, this is Dave Arnold from Cooking Issues, and I'm here to talk to you about the Museum of Food and Drink, which is finally getting a brick-and-mortar space right here in Brooklyn, New York. So the Museum of Food and Drink is opening the MOFAD Lab, our first laboratory and gallery space, where we will be putting on an exhibition called Making It or Faking It, the history of the flavor industry. And it tackles a very important uh, topic, which is how the food system got to be the way it is now uh, as a result of the intervention of the flavor industry, how that happened. Get your tickets at tickets.mofad.org to come see the first exhibit ever of the Museum of Food and Drink at the MOFAD Lab, brought to you by Infinity on 62 Bayard Street. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Culture City, a for-purpose organization that provides a place of acceptance and support for all autism families. This is Culture City's founder, Julian Maha. Culture City was really born out of uh, necessity. You know, it was born when my, uh, you know, currently six-year-old boy was diagnosed with autism. Uh, his name is Abram and he's non-verbal. And even though my wife and I were both physicians at the time, it was really hard for us to find any resources at that point to help him. All the other organizations out there that we know of, um, they do phenomenal work, but their main focus is basically finding a cure for autism. Our main focus is basically trying to prepare the community to accept not only children with autism, but their families as well. You know, in addition to that, we also want to provide help to these families in the here and now. You know, so tangible things like, you know, iPads for nonverbal kids, you know, financial scholarships, uh, therapy scholarships, you know, art camps, and also some um, lecture series that can teach parents about, you know, dietary issues, um, you know, how to financially plan and things like that. For more information, visit culturecity.org. Hey, hey, we're chatting with Chef Mike Anthony of Grimerse Tavern and Untitled about his new book, V is for Vegetables. Um, so, Chef, uh, tell me a little bit about how you translate your... I, I, okay, so to back up, like I think that um, you mentioned in the beginning um, that your food and your, um, your cooking style is very much integral with your local food system. Um, so the farmers that you work directly with, uh, the the Union Square Green Market, you know, which is uh, down the street um, where you forge a lot of your ingredients from and so forth. Um, I'm just curious, like, how do you apply that to, um, I guess, a broader audience through a cookbook, um, you know, when it's so unique to this region, to this community, so forth? Well, the good news is that uh, buying uh, vegetables and, and other ingredients from, you know, local sources is no longer looked at as um, some kind of marginal idea. We've seen across the country that more and more people are interested in the, the backstory of how their food is produced. They're interested and willing to support local economies. Um, they're just plain excited about the idea of being reconnected with the natural world around them. As a professional chef, the backbone of all the menus that I create are about telling a story that is unique to uh, the particular place mm -hmm. that where we're cooking and the season in which the, um, a menu appears. But this book talks about how, you know, even a home cook can take some of those same ideas and turn an ordinary day, you know, mm -hmm. uh, right during an ordinary work week or, you know, kids that are hustling around going to school um, and turn it into a celebration. It's a real source of pleasure, you know, when you, you can use food to... Um, to be, you know, a source of interest and mm -hmm. um, 
and a, a place of connection around the family um, dinner table. And, you know, listen, I try to, to come across as a realistic voice. I mean, with uh, I lead as hectic a pace of life as anyone, and, um, you know, the, the notion sometimes that, you know, when people talk about um, emphasizing uh, cooking with local ingredients and celebrating meals at home, it comes, I think it comes across as being a little you know, unrealistic and sometimes even hypocritical. But, you know, every family's got to figure it out, like, when and where it works for them. My mm-hmm. point is, is that it just, uh, it's, it's doable. And yeah. in some way, shape, or form, we can look to uh, the support that, you know, we, we have to, to share with people who grow stuff in our regions all over this country. Um, and that, that diversity is something that uh, is worthy of our attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's just the echoing effect. I mean, we even tried to, um, in each, the beginning of each category is a little quote, and they range from they range from all kinds of heroes. Mm-hmm. Some of them that are well known internationally, Waters. like Alice Waters and Nigel Slater, writers who have you know dedicated themselves to you know promoting the love of vegetables, and and a lot of them are, are friends that may not be well known internationally, mm-hmm. like uh, Brian Hallwile, Tamar yeah. Adler, um, Yukari Sakamoto. Like these are friends of mine that love to eat. Um, they write about food. Um, and it really is, this book is about conveying enthusiasm mm-hmm. and, you know, in some realistic form. And and it does have that, I, I, I like that it does have that personal um, narrative feel. It has that, um, you know, th- these anecdotes that are close to home, um, but it's uh, hopefully inspiring to anyone out there um, in a different location, totally. I- I hope so. I mean, yeah. we we've we've pulled from all kinds of sources of inspiration. You know, Deborah Madison has been a leading voice of authority in the subject, but we also pulled from Frank Zappa. So, like, mm-hmm. there. The thing is, is that American food has really no boundaries, and it shouldn't. Um, you know, it shouldn't be tied down to any kind of um, you know blacklisting of things you should and shouldn't eat. It should be. Um, you know, welcome and receiving of ideas that come from around the world. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think that food tastes best when it's grown close to home. When you eat stuff that's, you know, pulled out of the ground um, and eaten hours later, it tastes much different than things that have been sitting on shelves for days and days. And let's take advantage of it more. I mean, I hear so many people say, well, um, you know, meat is cheaper. And it's true. It can be cheaper than, um, say, I don't know, um Jerusalem artichokes, right? Or something like that. Um, I think when we start talking about money and what it costs to put a meal on the table, there is, um, you know, a bit of a story that um, is just underneath the surface throughout this book um, that explores the idea if we really just um, examined or explored uh, the American meal in a slightly different proportion, maybe envisioned it in a bowl rather than on a plate, um, talked about the role that um, beans, legumes, rice, okay. grains could yeah. play uh, in conjunction with these other vegetables. But all of a sudden, like, um, these meals aren't more expensive than it takes to go out and purchase, you know, other kinds of uh, commodity foods. If we just um, start thinking about, you know, these notions of one meal, how it impacts the next, that cooking isn't really the sum of a bunch of recipes from cookbooks, 
but rather the evolution of, you know, ingredients that you bring home from the green market and, and have the vision and the organization to set up, um, you know, three to five meals from one mm-hmm. trip. I really wanted to think about and help um, the folks that are out there um, already committed to trying to buy these ingredients and, and really turning that into a week's worth of meals rather than just one right. um, exhaustive <laughs> adventure in the kitchen. And with the le- leftovers, um, right. which are always I good. really don't like leftovers. I have to admit <laughs> that I'm not a fan of eating the same thing no. day after day or meal after meal. But what I really love is the notion that, you know, a, a home cook would take the food that's left over from one meal and then have a plan for um, developing and turning that into something delicious in the next meal. And and that's kind of the art of cooking, and it comes from practice. Um, I can't really write a cookbook that um, is like, close your eyes, one, two, three, snap, here's a beautiful meal that's going to um, turn, you know, impress you your can't? friends and family. It does take a little bit of practice. Like and I think that disconnect that we have with our kitchens is something that this this book could could help with right on um I, it's really interesting about the comp- thinking about composition of dishes you mentioned if everyone eat out of a bowl um like that gives that kind of well i guess the ratio of plants to other things in a bowl is endless it's flexible endlessly um, not to mention that like that concept is you know, it, it kind of favors the idea of using one or two pots mm. and pans at home rather mm-hmm. than, you know, five or six that a typical right. professional chef would end up using. So the notion of kind of, you know, re- a realistic meal that's cooked and then takes into consideration the cleanup that's involved in a home kitchen. Yeah. You know, we don't, <laughs> not many of us have, you know, a, a, dishwasher, a dishwasher crew and no. multiple hands to plate these things. So we have to think about, like, you go to the trouble of preparing a meal, you you want to know that you can get it on the table hot the way it was intended or, or cold and whatever, mm-hmm. you know, depending on the recipe. And then, you know, that the cleanup is not going to be one of those things that deters you from turning around and doing it tomorrow. Yeah. Very good to keep in mind. Um, so we're just about out of time, but um, so many of these recipes um, just look so fetching. And I know that they're all brilliant. However, behind this, uh, I guess the behind-the-scenes story of uh, exploring some of these vegetables, I'm very curious to hear about any disasters you may have had uh, with trying a vegetable, say for the first time. Well, say I artichoke. Will say it's interesting that you ask that because um, you know some vegetables are harder than others to really um, turn into something that is deeply delicious. And I wanted to be really open and honest about that. You know, I didn't want to try to talk anyone into saying, you know what, just eat this. You're going to love it when I I may not have loved it to begin with. And rutabaga is a tough customer. I will admit that turning rutabaga into something lovable is is a tough business. Uh And so you'll see that the recipe that I chose in this book leans on some richer flavors. And I am not shy about you know, in some cases where it really, and you know, um, turns the story into a win, you know, yeah. we have to use cream and butter and, and cheese to, to really celebrate some of those guys. I mean, black radish oh, appears oh in this book, yeah. and that black radish is a tough customer, um, but those um, vegetables are so readily available that, you know, we, we want to celebrate them. They just take a little extra ingenuity to get there. I love the rutabaga gratin recipe. It looks very, um, you know, easy to make sort of like a potato 
uh, you know, substitute. Rutabaga really benefits from kind of having uh, a little bit of richness along with it and a little, some, some kind of sweet partner. Mm -hmm. In that Mm -hmm. case, we use dates, but you know, any kind of dried fruits, um, work out really well in conjunction with, um, plants that have that turnipy like quality that, Mm -hmm. you know, for Mm -hmm. some of us is a little off-putting. A little bit of funk Um, there. Yeah. uh, Sometimes it takes a few instruments to, you know, come together to make a really beautiful sound. So in that case, like, yeah, it it needs some help. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Well, um, so inspiring. I can't thank you enough for your time today, Mike. Um, And we'll look forward to all the, uh, hey, next cookbooks you might be coming out with and other exciting um, dishes that you got cooking um, that's about all the time Thanks we have for today. Appreciate Thanks. you talking. This book comes out on Tuesday on the 27th. And for anyone who's out there, we're going to be at the 92nd Street Y celebrating with John T. Edge, who's one of oh, the most amazing authorities on food and one of the funniest guys around. So I hope um, anybody listening would come out and join us at 7 o'clock at the 92nd Street 92nd Y. Tickets Street are available y. through the Y. Awesome. That sounds exciting. Um, Well, thanks again, and we'll see you next week, or see everyone here at Heritage next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks, Kathy. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. And I-